Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Tom Dunkel, author of the new book White Knights in the Black Orchestra, the extraordinary story of the Germans who resisted Hitler. Uh, Tom, welcome to Bookstuck. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you for having me. And congratulations uh, on the book. So where does the title come from, White Knights, Black Orchestra? It's a dual uh, connection there. The the Black Orchestra was a, a bit of a, a slang term internally at the Gestapo. And there was a whole backstory to, uh, to the language there that, again, this was in Gestapo investigating some resistance operators in Germany, but they would often have a radio. And in the in the linguistics of this, a radio operator tapping on Morse code kind of looks like a piano player and involves them. Well, that's part of an orchestra. So originally there was a, a group of young resistors who had an affinity for uh, the Soviet Union and they were dubbed the Red Orchestra and they were large group of them arrested in September 42. And then as events played out, uh, the Gestapo and the military became aware of conspirators within the German government, military, government bureaucrats, and, and a, a couple of civilians like Dietrich Bonhoeffer sprinkled in there. And the name evolved into the Black Orchestra. So that was an internal slang term for, for Gestapo investigations. And the White Knights connection is, is an outgrowth of a... Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a great reader. And he continued his reading and writing habits when he was later arrested in April of 43 and did a lot of reading in prison, one of which was a book by a 19th century German author called Wittico is the name of the book. And it, and it dates back to the medieval days and all the uh, political machinations. And it's an, a thousand page novel. And uh, the one character in there with, with Tico is, is sort of a knight errant. And Bonhoeffer had a fiance at that time, and he was encouraging her to read the book, among other things. And she picked up on this whole idea of, of the, the noble quest of a, of a white knight and how it mirrored what Bonhoeffer and some of the conspirators were doing. So they were having a back and forth about that book and other things that they were mutually reading at that time. And hence uh, the title White Knights in the Black Orchestra. Yeah, it's it's interesting that that you start uh, the book with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Maybe that's not surprising because he is one of the most famous of the anti-Nazi resistors. What is surprising, however, is that you begin the book uh, in Harlem. What What's the story there? Actually, originally, as I had conceived of the book, I was going to begin it in 1939. And I found when I actually got, that sounded good at the proposal stage in my outline stage. But when I actually, when I actually sat down and started writing, I thought I needed to provide more background information on, on both Hitler's rise to power and what some people, how some people such as Bonhoeffer were, were digesting and, and processing all of that. And I was flashing back too much to the early 1930s. And so I decided to move it back to 1931 when Bonhoeffer comes to New York City to study at Union Theological Seminary. And there's a couple of things that foreshadows 
when Bonhoeffer gets an opportunity to return to New York City in, in 1939. And I wanted to set that up better. And then also, it's the the interesting backdrop here of of American race relations and how it sort of the pinball effect it has with something of what's going on in Germany. And what was news to me as I was reporting the book is that I did not realize that that the Nazis subsequently based a lot of their or their ethnic and race laws. They were actually studying the laws that were on the books in 30 of the states in the U.S. regarding black and white race relations. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's one of the, it is one of the really interesting things with Bonhoeffer that, that he seems genuinely baffled that uh, whites uh, were cheering Duke Ellington at the Cotton Club, you say, but they wouldn't allow him uh, to Duke Ellington to share the same water fountain. And there is a kind of uh, something that Bonhoeffer himself later reflects on that he has a kind of sense almost of moral superiority here that uh, this seems such a contrast to Germany that, uh, yes, there was anti-Semitism in Germany, there was anti-Semitism in the United States, but nothing seemed as extreme in Germany uh, as it did in the United States. That would change very, very quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that whole um, interesting relationship that he had with New York City, and, and again, speaking of 1939, Bonhoeffer was in a position where he basically could have sat out you know, World War II. I mean, he, he, he does that one year, almost one year, at Union Theological Seminary in September 31st and following summer. Uh, so it's about eight or nine months over there. And then he stays in touch with a number of people on the faculty there. And in summer of 39, where the, the drums of war are beating in Europe, and, and he knows that an invasion of Poland is imminent, he comes back, he arranges a, a temporary uh, teaching fellowship with his contacts at Union Theological Seminary. So he was in a position to frankly sit out the war. And he had other friends in the U.S. that were going to line him up with, with speaking engagements and other faculty positions. And his conscience weighed on him so heavily. I mean, he gets to New York City and I think it's mid-June 39 and only stays about four or five weeks. And he, among his motivations, one was that he personally missed contact with the underground seminary he was running over there. But also he said, how can I be part of the rebuilding of Germany post-war if I was content to sit out the war at a safe distance over the United States. So he makes that decision to return, uh, which turns out to be a fateful decision. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We had Dan Axt on the show uh, last week uh, talking about his new book, War by Other Means, that uh, looks at others of the uh, these Union Theological College characters, uh, including David Dellinger. Uh, and so the, the, this sense of difficult decisions being made from uh, ethical and moral, uh, for ethical and moral, moral reasons, often coming to different conclusions about that. But it, it does kind of emphasize that uh, this really is a period where, you know, very often you can just kind of uh, just shuttle along quite easily uh, in life. This was one of those moments where people were having to make literally life and death choices, not just about their own uh, futures, but also about the societies in which they found themselves. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, sometimes we as speaking of 
of Americans here uh, take somewhat of a, um, I don't know what they want to call it, moral superiority, but as you know, people often say, well, you know, why didn't people do anything over there? Why, you know, we were, somebody should have done it. Well, people were trying to do something, but it was incredibly, uh, I think we lose sight of just how brutal that existence was over there. And the sort of image that kept recurring to me as I was writing the book was, and these conspirators were obviously talking about this all the time among themselves and particularly with the policy in Germany, which was called Sippenhaft, which if you are considered guilty of a crime, so is your extended family. So you're not just involved with your own self-interest. There are other people. And it's, I had this image of the of people just being stuck in kind of a box canyon where they, they wanted to do the right thing. They couldn't let themselves not do the right thing, but the path out of that canyon to do the right thing was so narrow and so restricted and, and so, in a way, convoluted that there was not a simple path forward. But if your conscience tells you you have to follow that path, that's what a number of the, the decision a number of these uh, men and women make. Yeah, and, and in, in many ways, the heart of the book, uh, it seems to me, are these characters uh, who are working within the system trying to ameliorate some of the worst impacts of the system. Uh, Admiral Canaris is uh, somebody that you uh, write about uh, throughout the book. Uh, Hans von Donjani, a Hungarian official working in Berlin, uh, is somebody else who's very central. Some listeners may uh, know him as the father of the famous uh, conductor, Christoph von Donjani. So uh, the, these characters are really walking the most precarious of lines, aren't they, between uh, trying to do something, but at the same time uh, risking their own personal safety and those of their families. Oh, absolutely. And uh, Christine Valdayani, who was Dietrich Bonhoeffer's sister and Hans's wife, uh, she had a, a wonderful quote post-war where she was exchanging letters. It was with uh, Otto John, who had been a, an attorney at Lufthansa, who was kind of on the fringe of this conspiracy. He was, he was involved, but not, not one of the intimates. And he and Hans uh, Vandayani had, there was one point in 1938 where, where there was a, a quickly failed coup attempt. But at that time, their plan was to, was to arrest Hitler and put him on trial and sort of get him out of power that way, which, of course, did not happen. But so she writes to him after the war and, and she was haunted by the horror of the war and all the deaths she saw with, you know, her husband and brother and another brother and a brother-in-law. I mean, it was the family, the Bonhoeffer family was, was ravaged by this. And she writes to him and, and paraphrasing perhaps a bit here, but she said, um, I believe it is better to know what one will die for than to not know exactly what you are living for. That, so that's, that's the mindset you know, that, that these folks had. That, and they, you know, the Bonhoeffer family discussed this at length during the war, but uh, there was that compulsion that this is what you had to do. And, and come what may, you know, what the implications might be, the moral choice was, was such an imperative, it, it really, in a way, wasn't a moral choice. They felt they had no other alternative. And they, they, they did have some uh, success. I mean, uh, tell us about Operation 7, for example. Yeah, that was quite interesting. And that's, that's very, uh, 
indicative of Hans Dalyani's uh, conscience and moral sensibilities. It had its early uh, gestation when the when the first started. Um, the first Jews were actually deported to France, and uh, I believe it was June forty-one thereabouts. And Bonhoeffer felt an obligation. There was a woman who works in the offices, what would become outlawed, the Confessing Church, a woman by the name of Charlotte Friedlandthaler. And she was uh, she was not no longer a practicing Jew, but like many people in Germany of Jewish heritage, you are still a Jew. So he was worried about her future and was trying to find a way to get her out and was exploring that with with theological friends of his in, in Switzerland. And then uh, summer of 42, they basically closed the door on, on any exit visas for Jews. So they evolved this this plan, which actually Canarist had inadvertently trial tested this in the Netherlands early on, where they were going to, you know, spirit a group of Jews out of Germany, kind of disguising them as Abwehr agents. And this had to be approved by Canaris. And he somehow got Himmler, Heinrich Himmler, to sign off on this. And it started with just seven, and then it expanded eventually to 14 people. And these were all friends of, of people of, within the conspiracy. Uh, Diani knew some people, Canaris knew some people, etc. Yeah, and at, at, at that point, you actually say in the book, there's no mistaking his Canaris, uh, his his intent in rescuing Jews from the Netherlands. This this is something very intentional. Yeah, he's and as you know, he's a very enig- enigmatic, funny person to get a handle on. So he approves this, and the Swiss government at that time was accepting immigrants, but you had to have proof that you were, you couldn't work over there, but you had to prove that you were, you had income and you could support yourself. So Danyani also felt that, that these people would have to leave their homes behind. They would have to leave most of their, basically leave a lucky if you were left with a suitcase. Uh, so they're leaving their lives behind. And he says, listen, we got to, we got to do something financially for these people. So they, they wind up cooking the books at Avar, and they divert $100,000 U.S. into this, what became called Operation 7, to give these people basically a, a grub, grub stake as, as they were starting new lives over there. And that finagling of the books originally attracts attention, some officers inside Avar who are not conspirators, and they're wondering, what, what the heck is going on with this money? What are, where, what's What's happening over here in Switzerland? Are these people actually doing anything? And that begins to unravel that plan. And then also within uh, Avar at that time, uh, Canaris was giving shelter to, you know, about 40 or so of the of these conspirators. And it, it eventually led, frankly, to the arrest of, of Danyani and uh, Von Hofer and some others. But if he had not taken that step, if they had just found a way to somehow dump these people in Switzerland uh, without the financial aid, you know, who knows how much further they could have extended their secret life and whether perhaps they might have been discovered during wartime. It's hard to say. You know, they were taking such such risks. (laughs) It's a wonder that they lasted as long as they did. But that was the beginning of the unraveling. 
Yeah, and it's and it's actually one of the another one of the themes of the book. It it seems to me you you say this also in the context of the uh, famous uh, coup attempt by von Stauffenberg, the Valkyrie assassination uh, attempt against Hitler. That uh, in that context you say coups look perfect on paper. In practice, they rarely unfold according to plan. That really is is a theme that runs through all these operations. And 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 doubles down on the the sense of danger, personal danger, uh, which these characters are, are putting themselves under. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's. I mean, the pressure that that these people were living under, and and the risk taking they were taking under that pressure, is really quite extraordinary. And you know, it's funny the the detours that people's lives take under these horrid conditions. But one of the people who popped out at me in this book, and it, and, and this was someone who was not a part of my original pre-research. He was not part of uh, the proposal stage. I didn't know about him. As I dug deeper into the story, I came upon Pastor Harold Polchow, who was assigned to, to Gall Prison in, in Berlin. And he literally starts work uh, on April 1st, 33, which by coincidence was the, the day of the Jewish boycott, which is sort of the first kind of overt organized government attempt to harass Jews. And his ministry over the course of the war evolves into uh, consoling and counseling condemned prisoners on their, on their last nights of their lives. And it was extraordinary to me. You know, he originally was keeping keeping track kind of a list of these people. And, and as events unfolded, it got, the numbers got so big, the best he could do was estimate there was about a thousand people he had counseled in the last hours of, of their existence. And I, how this man bore up under that pressure. And he was also through, uh, on a, on a local level was active in the, in the resistance in his own way, uh, getting food to Jews, finding jobs for Jews, which, which there were not many to be found since they weren't allowed to work almost anywhere. But to sustain his mental health, if nothing else, during the course of the war under all oh. this pressure coming in a couple of different directions, I, I, it's remarkable, you know, just how much people can bear and will bear when they feel compelled they had to do it. The, one of the other elements uh, in the book uh, running through the story is the allied uh, intelligence services and the the work which they're doing that uh, I mean you've already actually mentioned the uh, the so-called Red Orchestra and the uh, what the Soviets are doing uh, you also have characters popping up like I, I noticed Nicholas Elliott who was famously a friend of Kim Philby although at that stage no one knew that Philby was a Soviet agent so he's there from British intelligence Alan Dulles, future CIA director, is knee-deep in all of this, possibly even has a hand in the, the Valkyrie uh, assassination attempt on, on Hitler. So there, there is this kind of sense of the tangled web of uh, confusion uh, and, and the world of intelligence uh, that is so much a part of this, uh, of this period. Well, yeah, and there was that, that I knew there had been some reaching out uh, during the war years from the German conspiracy side to to the Allies, particularly, uh, you know, they had conduits to Britain. I was not aware of how how many overtures had been made, and it was, you know, in retrospect, could the Allies have responded better? Or there's, you know, in wartime, there's 
that line of trust and mistrust <laughs> and how do you how do you balance that and how much risk are you willing to take as the, you know for example as the british government can we trust these guys how do we and that neither side could quite trust the other but they wanted to make some sort of connection that never that never fully connects although there were little bits and pieces as as you alluded to where uh, you know for example uh it was quite telling after the war where where Alan Dulles, this is in 47, the summer of 47, U.S. is doing his post-war analysis and wondering whether they need to establish a permanent intelligence service, which would quickly become the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. And Dulles is, is called to testify on Capitol Hill. And they have closed-door hearings, and he testifies as in favor of this. And he talks about how he had uh, successfully made inroads into the Abwehr primarily through Canaris and Hans Oster, who was number two at Abwehr. But then he says that it was Oster and Canaris who leaked the details of the German V-1 and V-2 rocket programs <laughs> to the Allies, who were able to bomb that facility. And I'll probably mispronounce it. It was at, at Penning, which is a, up on the Baltic coast. And by Dulles's estimation, he thought that that delayed the deployment of the V-1 and V-2 rockets by at least six months. Now, during the course of war, that's fairly significant, you know, time frame. So while there, you know, there was never that clear, crisp connection where, yes, we, the Allies, will cooperate with you, the conspirators, in, in terms of assassinating Hitler and make this happen. But there was those little pockets of connections and those little sparks which, um, you know, how do you measure that, the effect of that stuff? But clearly Dulles thought it was pretty effective and, and, and actually put a time frame on it. So that's, it's all part of that eclectic, crazy pressure cooker atmosphere that, was, that these folks were operating in. Now, the end of the book is a, is a sad litany of resistance figures who the regime uh, catches up with and executes. Uh, that includes Bonhoeffer and Dognani. I mean, this is a, a very dark period uh, to work on. Uh, it, it often occurs to me uh, as a historian working in a, in a period like this, uh, you know, just even on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, how do you as a historian deal with looking into a, a period where uh, you've got kind of so much uh, what I think we can unambiguously describe as as evil to deal with. Yes, just parenthetically, let me mention, I don't consider myself a historian. I'm, I'm, I'm just one of these journalist guys, um, so I'm not on your level <laughs> of, of that. But uh, certainly when you write a, a, a book like this, it's undeniable that you're dealing with with a dark period of time and, and there's not going to be happy endings for a lot of these characters. I think as you write it, you just have to take solace in the fact that there are no guarantees of what an outcome is going to be if you're doing the moral thing. But what is what I found reassuring is that there were a number of people willing to take that, that risk. And that's, I see, is the lightness in the book. And I think, uh, again, speaking of, of, of a general audience in America, I, I don't think Perhaps people have a full appreciation of, you know, they may have heard of Valkyrie, they may have heard a little bit about Bonhoeffer, but I don't think an American audience, and it may be the same in, in, in Britain as well, 
that they they have an appreciation of just what was going on over there and how many people were trying to do the right thing. And yes, it's a minority of people com compared to the entire population of Germany, but also figuring the, just the terror they were operating under. So you look for those, those points of light of people doing the right thing. And then I was, I, I was aware that I wanted some people to, to survive this ordeal, some people in the book to survive this ordeal. And that's why I was, I was somewhat relieved or delighted in a way to, to stumble on somebody like, um, you know, Harold Palchow or uh, Fabian, Fabian von Schlabrendorf, who, who, one of the conspirators who winds up surviving the war. And then I also wanted some, some American voices in there. And it was important to me that I, I came across upon Raymond Geist, who was a consul officer in Berlin for that's about 11 years. I think he first started over there in 29. And he was, he was ringing the alarm bells uh, to people in the State Department about what was going on over there. But, but he was doing the best he can to get visas, to get people out of the country at a time. And, th and there was something on the order of, there was about a six-year period there where he had some statistics where there's something on the order of 386,000 visa applications you know, coming into the U.S. consulate in Berlin. And during that time period, the U.S. had its restrictions on immigration from Germany that only 75,000 of those could be fulfilled. So, and Geist is a guy on the front lines over there scrambling to get people out of that country and managing to get 75,000 out. But there's, you know, a couple of hundred thousand that, that weren't out. But he winds up, you know, he winds up leaving Germany uh, shortly after uh, the invasion of Poland. But um, you know, those people that not everybody met a sad end and you just have to, you just have to grasp onto that, those little shards of, of hope and, and goodness that you find. And, and you know, those are the little points of light in the dark book, uh, but it's, it's, that's how that history unraveled and you've got to tell it the way it is. So the book is White Knights and the Black Orchestra, the extraordinary story of the Germans who resisted Hitler. It's written by my guest, Tom Dunkel, and published by Hachette Books. Uh, but for now, Tom, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you, Richard, and uh, very good talking to you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening.